0: KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Monday evening, where we will continue our reflections into Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. We are in chapter 8, and we will pick up with where we left off last week in chapter 8 in a bit, but what I wanted to open up with is a reflection into something that I have talked about in the past, but I wanted to add something to it. You've heard me talk about how the church is really calling us to consider more acutely that word mystery, or maybe even more specifically, how we are all called to be mystics. What does it mean to be a mystic? Well, we have all had mystical encounters, where we have encounters with the super ordinary In our ordinary life, right? And out from that super ordinary encounter arises this deep conviction to serve God. And so you enter more deeply into God's sacred mysteries. Now, as I speak to the mystical and what the church wants us to look at more acutely, I do so because if you pull open the curtain, what you see is that since 1970, there have been six saints declared doctors of the Church. Who are they? Well, in 1970, you had Saint Teresa of Avila and Saint Catherine of Siena declared doctors of the Church. Uh, under John Paul II, you had Saint Trez of Lisieux. Under Benedict XVI, you had Saint John of Avila and Saint Hildegard of Bingen. And under Pope Francis, you have Saint Gregory. Now, what's unique about all six of those saints, all six of those doctors? right next to their name, you'll find a word, mystic. Now, there are not a lot of people talking about this, but I'm here telling you now that (laughs) there's a reason why, because the Church is asking us to be more proactive in our contemplating the sacred mysteries of Christ. Now, what did I want to add? Well, something struck me over the weekend, and it's just something that I missed. Under John Paul II, he announced five new mysteries five new mysteries on top of the other 15 mysteries. What are these five new mysteries called? The luminous mysteries, or the mysteries of light, or the mysteries of theophany, if you will. What is a theophany? A theophany is the manifestation of God, right? The revelation of God in some great light, and in the luminous mysteries, you have these profound manifestations of the divine before the human, if you will. Uh, Consider the baptism of Jesus. What takes place at the baptism of Jesus? But do you not have a manifestation of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit in the form of a dove? How about the wedding feast at Cana and the great miracle of turning the wine into water? What about the proclamation of the kingdom of God and all of the great kingdom of heaven parables and the great sermon on the mount? And of course, the fourth mystery of light is the transfiguration. I don't know if there is any one biblical narrative that is more tied to the mystical than the transfiguration. And of course, the fifth mystery of light is the institution of the Eucharist, where Jesus Christ institutes the Eucharist in the upper room. So, in these five luminous mysteries, in these five mysteries of light, in these five theophanies, we are made to contemplate what? God's manifestation and how God manifests himself in our everyday life. So, just something more to think about. And while this was a reflection that was being drawn out of me this weekend, it was also teased out further because of the verses we are going to read today where we talk about the glory of Christ. So, if you have your Bibles out, if you can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and I will go ahead and read verses 16 to 24, so this evening we will wrap up with our reflections into chapter 8. Again, this is chapter 8, verse 16. But thanks be to God who put the same concern for you into the heart of Titus, for he not only welcomed our appeal, but since he is very concerned He has gone to you of his own accord. With him we have sent the brother who is praised in all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has also been appointed our traveling companion by the churches in this gracious work administered by us for the glory of the Lord and for the expression of our eagerness. This we desire to avoid that anyone blame us about this lavish gift administered by us. For we are concerned for what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of others. And with them we have sent our brother, whom we often tested in many ways and found earnest, but who is now much more earnest because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and co worker for you. As for our brothers, they are apostles of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to them. All right. So in order to facilitate the Corinthians' contribution to the collection that we have been talking about recently, Paul announces that he is sending Titus and two brothers to Corinth. He commends them to the community and exhorts the church to do what? To receive his emissaries or in the Greek Uh, his apostles, right? And to heed their directives. He also makes clear that the administration of the monies collected is transparent and above reproach, right? So Paul opens his commendation up with a note of gratitude. Did we not talk about this last week? Thanks be to God. Caris, huh? Caris, that Greek word for thanks is charis, the same word where we get the word grace and joy. Observe that Paul employs yet another sense of charis, the sense of thanksgiving, thanksgiving. Many of friends, Paul highlights once again God's role in initiating and enabling the work of the collection, because what does he say? It is God who has put or given given concern for the Corinthians into the heart of Titus. So we have this image of God putting into the heart of Titus this concern for others. And of course, in this case, this concern for the Corinthians. So the one who gives the spirit in the hearts of Christians has now inspired concern. Or we can even better translate that as eagerness in the heart of Titus. Remember in a reflection on Mary where we were talking about her response, her yes. This was not a a passive yes. It was an eager yes. It was a yes that spoke specifically to to this uh, desire to do God's will, Uh, eager to do God's will. This is what's going on here. Paul and his emissaries are eager, eager to do God's will right? This is very different than doing God's will with resistance. No, 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 no. To do God's will earnestly, honestly, truthfully, you do so how and why? How? Because God put it into your heart, and why? To give glory to God, okay? This is why the Greek is so important. Could we not say that Titus' concern is the same concern the same love that Paul himself has for the community. In many commentaries make note here that Paul's pastoral skills are evident as he emphasizes that he and Titus are concerned first and foremost with the Corinthians themselves, not with their uh, money or ability to give. Paul then explains how Titus's concern has manifested itself Titus welcomed Paul's appeal to return to Corinth to help the community complete their contribution. Titus needed little prompting. His love for the Corinthians is so strong that he is very concerned, as the verses speak to it, that he is coming to them of his own accord. Here it is worth considering what Paul is making explicit if it is not otherwise implicit in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, he suggests that God's grace has borne fruit in the generosity freely offered by the Macedonians. In verses 16 to 17, what we just read, he intimates that God's gift of concern in Titus' heart has moved the latter to freely return to Corinth. What Paul implies in these passages, my friends, is the catalyzing role that grace plays in the empowerment of human freedom. We should never miss this, because indeed it is when we submit ourselves to the Spirit's promptings to obey God's will that we are most free. That is why Saint Paul claimed in chapter 3 verse 17 that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what Freedom. If we wish to be free, my friends, free as God calls us to be free, then we must come to understand what it is that God is asking from us. Remember, obedience is an extraordinary counsel, and in many ways, one that opens us up to the essence of freedom. Why? Because what does the word obedience mean? Ob adire, to Listen, how can we possibly know what God wants from us if we are not first listening? If we are going to God with the mindset that because we are going to God, he is going to shower us with all of these gifts, we have it all wrong. We go to God not with our gift, but open to first receive, receive his gift for us. You see? And we can only do so by first listening. Ob adire. And it is only then will we be free to love as we ought. You've heard me play around with images from creation. When is the bird most free? When is the fish most free? The bird is most free when it is flying, right? The fish is most free when it is swimming. Man is most free when he is listening to God. And loving as God calls him to love out from that open dialogue with God. So all very important. What else here? Well, let's drop down to verses uh, 20 to 22. You know, Paul states in positive terms what he wishes to accomplish. He is concerned for what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of others. Now, here he adapts the wording of Proverbs chapter 3 verse 4 in order to explain his manner of organizing the collection. As with all things, my friends, St. Paul acts as one who is in the sight of God. Did we not talk about this in the opening chapters, chapter 1 verse 23? He is always operating not as if he's in the sight of God, because, well, he was in the sight of God, right? He was constantly practicing the presence of God, constantly calling to mind how God was working in each and every encounter and act that he was a part of. Now, in addition to this, because of the potential for suspicion regarding the collection, Paul conducts himself with complete transparency before others. And in doing so, he teaches that both one's actions and the way they appear to others are morally significant. What's going on here, my friends, is that we have to be accountable for our actions. We have to understand that everything we do, everything we do, is observed by someone, right? And whether they should be judging what we do or not, the reality is if we are doing something wrong, we can cause scandal. And St. Paul wants to make it clear, there is no scandal going on here. I am not motivated by my lavish desires for material things, or I am not motivated by my avarice or greed. No, I am motivated as an apostle for the building up of the church. Every time we put money into a basket, we hope and pray that the money we are putting into the basket isn't feeding some pastor's lavish desire for material want, but rather a pastor's desire to build up the kingdom of God. All right, notice too that Paul commends these brothers as what? The glory of Christ. What does he intend by this description? Well, recall what we talked about in the opening chapter, especially in verses 20 to 22, that the Spirit empowers Christians to become the amen, which was Paul's shorthand way of describing how Christians walk in the way of Jesus's yes in obedience to the will of God. Such faithfulness, as we saw then, we see now, is for glory, the glory of Christ. Similarly, Paul alludes in chapter 3, verse 18, to the power of the Holy Spirit to transform us into what? The likeness of the glory of Christ. In calling the brothers the glory of Christ, Paul signifies that they conduct themselves in fidelity to God's will after the manner of Jesus himself, thereby reflecting the glory of his self-giving way of life. You know, I opened up this evening with a reflection into the mystical, with a reflection into the importance of understanding that God desires to manifest himself to us in each and every moment. And that when we internalize the glory of God in our own hearts, we become what? The glory of Christ. When we have the divine indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we become the praise of God. What does Saint Irenaeus of Lyon say? The glory of God is man fully alive. Or maybe I know that Latin is better translated as the glory of God is to be fully human. The glory of God is man fully alive because man is fully alive when he has the glory of Christ within him, when the glory of Christ has invaded his soul through and through. Okay, before we jump into chapter 9 and our Reflection into the importance of generosity. We have certainly spoken to it to some extent. I did want to speak to its countervice here a little bit, and I wanted to do so with my favorite scholar, Peter Kraft. He says this of Avarice. Its old name was Covetousness. Its new name is Greed. Right, so there you can begin to see how, how and uh, why avarice is the counter (laughs) vice to the virtue of giving, to the virtue that we have been talking about as it relates to chapter 8 and we'll talk about with chapter 9. What's interesting here and what what Peter Kreft notes is that Christian tradition ranks it even ahead of lust and second only to pride in the list of all-time spiritual villains. What does Saint Paul call avarice? Does he not call avarice the root of all evil? The root of all evil. Those are strong words, my friends. St. Thomas Aquinas defines avarice as the immoderate desire for temporal possessions, which can be estimated in money. Money is ubiquitously tempting because of a kind of umbrella principle, right? We have this mindset that money has a way of protecting us, acting like a security blanket against change or against things we can't control. <laughs> Peter Kreft says, avarice apes itself like a divine self-sufficiency. I love that. Now, what we have to appreciate here is that avarice or greed is not desire as such, or even desire for temporal possessions as such, but the immoderate desire for them for it is natural to man to desire external things as means but it becomes greed my friends when those means become ends or gods strange gods as sacred scripture would put it and as peter kreft puts it (laughs) when a creature is made into a god it becomes a devil a devil God seems to have considered greed especially important as early as Moses' time. For the only two of the Ten Commandments that deal explicitly with inner attitudes of spirit rather than outer actions are the Ninth and Tenth, which forbid what? Avarice. You've heard me say before that our Lord spoke about greed more than any other sin. Just count the times He talked about money riches, possessions, mammon. And remember, we translate the Aramaic for mammon. It's just not money, but our reliance upon money, our trust upon money. If trust is the great act and virtue of faith, then what is mammon? The opposite of that. You see, our Lord's attention, unlike ours, <laughs> was not fixated on lust or violence but on the more socially respectable and therefore we could say the more hidden and dangerous sins. He scandalized his disciples with many hard sayings about detachment from worldly goods and about how hard it would be for a rich man to enter his kingdom. My dear friends, have you ever read James carefully? Read chapter 4 carefully. James discovered the root of war and avarice when he wrote What causes wars and what causes fightings among you? Is it not your passions that are at war in your members? You desire and do not have, so you kill. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and wage war. Mm, mm, mm. What about St. Francis of Assisi? Many of us are familiar with the story of St. Francis of Assisi, where everything was brother and sister, brother, son, sister, moon. He had this great affection for creation. And, and in not some unhealthy, super environmental way, no. He saw God's creation as God's first love letter to man. And so he would identify with all created things as brother and sister. But there was one thing that was not brother or sister but lady. Well, let me correct myself. There were two ladies (laughs) in Francis's life. Lady Pica, his mother, right, and Lady Poverty. Excuse me, Lady Poverty. Why did he hold poverty with such high esteem, with such high regard? Because he knew the Gospels intimately. He studied them carefully. His whole life was devoted to them entirely, and he understood what the gospel looks like. So few before St. Francis of Assisi understood the gospel the way St. Francis of Assisi understood the gospel. You have heard me quote A Severe Mercy before, that gut-wrenching memoir of Sheldon and Davy Van if you have not read A Severe Mercy, I highly, highly encourage you to read A Severe Mercy. I have it as one of my book reviews on my website. Read A Severe Mercy. It is a story about love, a divine sacrificial love between Sheldon and Van Aken. Well, <laughs> in A Severe Mercy, Sheldon and Davy Vinokin, this couple, deliberately dented their shiny new sports car with an axe to free themselves from the worry that came from idolizing their sports car. That part just really struck me. If you're reading it, you might just kind of read past it. I don't know, but it's kind of hard to read past a couple taking an axe to their shiny new sports car because they didn't want to idolize it. Why did they do it? Why did St. Francis of Assisi call poverty lady Why does Jesus spend so much time talking about detachment? Because, brothers and sisters, if we are attached to worldly goods, then how can we possibly be attached to God and be attached to that divine sacrificial love that knows only one thing, generosity, giving? So we will pick up tomorrow in a reflection on generosity We will pick up tomorrow with a reflection on giving out from what we have talked about today so as to continue to probe the verses of St. Paul, all right? With that, let's close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 530 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.